You know, making up our mind. Making a decision on who we believe Jesus to be is the single most important thing we can ever do. The answer to the question, who do you believe Jesus is, shapes our lives and our understanding of the world more than any other decision we can make. Yet, there are so many vague, funny, slightly scary opinions about who Jesus is or was in the modern world. Myth, prophet, magician, made up, something to make you feel good, yay. Just a dead bloke. Prophet. Do you know, all of these opinions and voices make it so hard to make up our minds on who we actually think he is. And actually, for those who have made up their mind, those who are standing on the ground of who Jesus is, it can make it hard to stay there, watering down and confusing what worth we actually believe him and his teaching to have. And how much, to what degree are we really going to follow him? Do you know, the same was true of Jesus' time. It's not a new problem that there were many opinions on who Jesus was. There were a a multitude of opinions. And the confusion is not a new thing. In fact, as this miracle-working, preaching reformer rode about Galilee and dropped into Jerusalem at some of the major feasts now and then, pretty much everyone had an opinion on him. Good guy, a prophet like Elijah, dangerous, evil, bad. In fact, had somebody done a street survey, like the one we just saw, In Jesus' time, it probably wouldn't have looked much different. There would have been loads of confusion over who he was. Only there would have been less sunglasses and Gucci bags. And they probably wouldn't have known what a conference call was. So how did Jesus deal with this issue? And make sure people were truly responding to him. For or against him. And not just someone else's opinion of him. Simple. He was brave. He was brave. I had a great conversation with Rachel the other week about the the place of courage and bravery. It really stood with me, actually, as you were learning about that. Just courage and bravery. In fact, Jesus was so brave. In fact, one of his defining characteristics, I would say for you, is bravery. Time and time again, he stood up in the public spaces, and talk clearly and fearlessly so that for those who had a heart to hear, there could be no mistake in who he was and what he was sent to achieve in this world. And many times he used these powerful I am statements. I am, I'm talking about me, I am this. 
One-liners of depth and clarity that every preacher since wants to recreate. Chris Butland kick-started this series last week with one of these amazing I am statements. How he stood up in the middle of a massive crowd of people who were following him in the desert and made the remarkable statement in that context, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. There's one thing I am. And today we're going to look at possibly the most famous and I would say dramatic of these I am moments, which happened at the most popular festival in the Jewish life, the Feast of Tabernacles. Gave you a dramatic picture with a lion on for the Feast of Tabernacles. Hope that engages you. This was the festival of festivals in the Jewish calendar where for eight days, just after the harvest, thousands upon thousands of Israelites and Gentile believers came from across Judah, gathered in Jerusalem to remember how God had sustained and led the people in the past, thanked God for his amazing provision now and that he was the sustainer of all life and looked forward to the incredible promises of the future. This festival of festivals was set every year so that the people would remember that God was over their past, in their present, and their future. During this week, they remembered that God was the God of the past, present, and future through a number of great acts. A bit like we do communion and baptism. Acts that help us to remember the wonder of what Jesus Christ has done and never lose sight of that. But on a much grander, like national scale, they did these acts. Like the whole community spending the week in these tent-like things, these booths. To remind them of a time when God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt and cared for them daily as they lived as a nomadic people in the desert, fed by him until they came into the future promises. Those of you who don't like camping, Pete Calcraft, or church camping trips, should take note here. It's always been celebrated in the history of God's people. The only difference is that every day they would feast in the tents together on the new harvest, eating all of the new produce and remembering that God was still sustaining every moment now. Gratitude for everything, just like Mim led us in today. They also did the great water-pouring ceremonies that occurred throughout the week. And on the last day of the festival, where precious, scarce water would be collected in great golden jars and then poured out throughout the week through a specific uh, gate, a gate of water, I think it was. Uh, out of the, what's that? The water gate, yeah. Not the scandal, the gate of water, water gate. It's going to take a long time for those of you who like a quick preach if you keep interrupting. <laughs> And then on the last day over the altar, 
reminding them of the God of the past, that moment in the desert, that amazing moment in the desert where they were scarce of water and Moses hit the stone and water flowed out, providing for their every need, remarkably. Just like Jesus was struck and his spirit flowed out. But reminding him that all of this water is dependent on God and his grace for now and his provision. And that amazing future promise as well. It was a picture of that incredible future promise. That the Lord will one day pour out his salvation and Holy Spirit on all. Joel 2.28. Past, present, future, celebrate through an act. But perhaps one act during this week would have stood out in beauty and impact above all others at the festival, which was that of the great candle-lighting ceremonies, where each night of the festival, except the Sabbath, four giant golden candlesticks, each 75 foot tall, with a vast bowl at the top, if you can imagine it, were filled with piles of logs and oil and old priestly garments, by the temple servants on huge ladders they would have had to climb with logs on their back, then lit like the Olympic torches, like four great Olympic torches, if you can imagine. Four huge bonfires flaming high over all Jerusalem, lighting every corner of the temple and seen for miles around. One commentator of the day said that these lights, when these lights were lit, there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect them as the great light shone out. And we're told that at this moment, the crowds would have been at their peak as these great torches were lit, casting their glow on every Jew and non-Jew in the place that Jesus stood. And this was the context. This was the moment where the crowds were great and this great lighting ceremony was going on. That Jesus stood up to give his second I am statement to teach all who he was. John 18, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. You know, these are words so familiar to many of us that they can often spill into our ears and drip back off our tongues without stopping in our minds on the way to change our thinking and pierce our hearts and ignite our spirits in the way he intended them to. But today, please make no mistake. These are incredible words. For firstly, they were brave words. Delivered to us at great cost. Like when Martin Luther King overcame threats, bombings of his home, police beatings, imprisonments, to declare to a very disunited states, I have a dream. See, just prior to the Feast of Tabernacles, we're told that huge numbers of people had rejected him for his first I am statement. We're told that he was the hidden talk on everybody's lips. 
He was the hot topic. And all of those opinions that we've heard about were present at that time. And that the Jewish leaders had already decided to kill him at the point he stood in the temple and said these things. They'd already tried to arrest him during the feast. But now here he was in the temple, standing and declaring to his critics and would-be murderers that he was the light of the world, a teaching which he knew would be maddening and inflammatory to the Jews that wanted to kill him. But a message he must give if people were to truly grasp who he was so that they could make the most important choice of their lives about him. Now, what's the nearest modern equivalent of doing something like this? It's probably, it's probably going to the, the, I think it's the Kaaba in Mecca, where thousands, have you seen those scenes? Thousands gather around this to worship Muhammad, standing up in the middle of it and going, listen, guys, he is a false prophet. You'd just be waiting for that first stone, wouldn't you? The rage of the crowds to overflow you. The offence it would cause. Yet here is Jesus in this moment, declaring who he was to his enemies so bravely. But secondly, we must make no mistake about these few words delivered in this moment that to think they're just a passing statement. They have so much meaning in them, delivered during this ceremonial act where the temple is set ablaze. So much revelation about Jesus that we should never let them grow cold to our minds or our hearts. Let's just look at these. They had meaning past, present, and future. Firstly, past. Now, as these four Towers stood blazing over all the tents. Two deeply significant acts of God were being recalled in the minds of people there. Firstly, how he guided them through the desert years in their past by a great, putting a great pillar of fire before them. As they remembered their time in the desert, as they were camped in their tents, they were remembering this great act of God that he guided them through night, through this place of danger, by setting a a fire. Me and Debbie were just reflecting on this over this weekend. Flipping amazing! I think Debs was like, you were sort of almost shaking just remembering it, weren't you? Just the fire of God, this ablaze tower before them to guide his people through their very earliest moments. We read about it in Exodus 13, 21 to 22. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. These four lights that were lit reminded them of this great flame flaming, guiding light that God had sent to them that led people in which way they needed to go. Something they had to put their absolute trust in. And how in the miles and miles of desert terrain where water and food were scarce, 
hostile nations surrounded them, and one wrong step could have ended them, their children, their families, scorched by the Middle Eastern sun. God had provided this pillar of light. I mean, these were slaves. Most of them didn't know the desert life. I'll provide this pillar of light, even as you know very little about your terrain. Trust in it implicitly, and it will guide you to safety. This was the first thing that they were calling as they lit this with the tents around, this great pillar of fire. The mighty God had provided them, to guide, that guided them into all safety. The second, day, second thing, and equally remi- remarkable, was that it reminded them of the times God's very presence had come to fill both the original tabernacle tent when they were on the move and then the replacing temple of that. The tent in the middle of the community or the temple in the middle of the community where God asked people to minister to him and he ministered to them. We read about these times firstly in Exodus 43 in regard to the tent, which says this, And the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Secondly, we read about it with the temple that replaced the tent in 1 Kings 8, 10 to 11. And when the priests had finished preparing the temple and come out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister before the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Now these were both central moments in Israel's history that they were remembering as they lit these big torches. God came, God, the mighty God, in all his power and glory and to came to be in the very heart of his people to be known by them on earth. This is where Emmanuel, which means God with us, came to be Emmanuel first and foremost. And these great lights reminded the people that their history had been one where the living God of uncontainable glory had contained himself, pierced time and space, and confined himself to something earthly. Firstly, the tent of the meeting, and then the temple at the heart of Jerusalem. And he came to dwell in earthly container in all his power and glory amongst them. As they lit these lights, both these amazing facts in their past history and what God had done for them would have been the forefront of their minds. The past. Present. I've already touched on this. As these torches were lit, in their present moment, something very real would have been happening in Jerusalem. A warmth and light would have flowed down every street of ancient Jerusalem, pushing back any darkness that covered it, casting a light on every building face, every person that was there, so that what was revealed was now, what was concealed was now revealed, and the beauty that was hidden can now be seen. As I've said, these weren't small torches. They were like the rising of the sun every morning. They're like when you open your curtains and the sun floods in, bringing warmth and light. At that moment that these were lit, the very real power of light was known in the moment, turning greys to colour, showing the true nature of things. 
the ornate carvings in the temple would have been seen. There would have been no dark hiding places left untouched. In this present moment, all would have been aware of the power and intimate need for God to bring light each day. That without it, there could have been no life, no ability to see properly. That his light sustains and brings clarity. In the present, they would have known this. And in the future, beyond both of these things, perhaps most prominently for many in a time when the Jewish nation was split, the great Roman Empire ruled over it, and it was a shadow of the nation that had been under David and Solomon, far from the blessing to all nations that God had called it to be. Every time these beacons were lit, so was the hope of a coming Messiah. Prophesied hundreds of years earlier by Isaiah, the prince of prophets, repeatedly. Who repeatedly spoke about God sending one who would restore Israel and bless the whole earth through his actions. Isaiah 42.6 A light for the nations who would open up the eyes of the blind. 49 verse 6, a light for the nations that his salvation shall reach to the ends of the earth. 51 verse 4, justice and a light to all peoples he would bring. Every time these lights were lit, they reminded the people of a promised (coughs) saviour whose role was to illuminate to all people what God's salvation actually looked like. Bring to them where they previously didn't understand something. Understanding. Where they were previously blind to bring them sight. This person, this anointed one by God, was to give understanding and clarity to all nations from all backgrounds. The light bulb that would illuminate and free. As these were lit, the past guidance and glory of God was remembered. The present power of light to bring the fullness of life was revealed. And the future promise of the Messiah was in the mind's eye. So when Jesus stood up and shouted in the temple that day, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He left no room. No room whatsoever, for I am just a good guy. He's just a nice moral teacher. Just somebody whose intentions have been a little bit understood, misunderstood. Got People have got carried away with him. He fiercely challenged the view that he was evil and sent to lead the people into harm or astray, or that he was just a prophet. Instead, he clearly and boldly proclaimed, you want to know who I am? You want to know who I am? Above all the opinions of the world, I am the new pillar of fire who you should trust in completely. 
in my life, my direction and guidance as you walk through this life. And I will keep you and protect you from harm. I am the new dwelling place of the glory of God that will one day replace the sun in lighting up the whole of creation. I am where he has broken into history and become Emmanuel right now, me in my person. To make a home with mankind and be known. I am he. I am the flaming light that when it hits your life, floods into the darkness. And lights up the whole of your life, illuminating the good and the bad. Brings colour, shows the true nature of the world and forces it to be dealt with. I illuminate that which is beautiful so you can see it fully. I illuminate that which is harmful and then I give you power to break it. But most of all, most of all, I'm not just a Jew. I am the Messiah. I'm the one you're waiting for. I'm the one that has been pointed to throughout history. The one who will be a light to the nations. And I illuminate what you formerly didn't know. The gospel, the gospel, where Tim Keller puts it, that no matter what nation, what backgrounds, what class, where, however you see yourself at the start, no matter where you came from, you are more sinful than you could ever know, but also more loved than you could ever imagine. Because of your sin, your relationship with God has been broken. And you're caught in a life of wrong that means you will one day face judgment and punishment from a just God. But because of his unfailing love, Emmanuel, the light of the world, came and died on a cross to restore you, to forgive you, to take your place, to bring you back into relationship with God and take that punishment for you as an act of of mercy, and as we learn afresh this this week, which impacted us all so deeply, I cannot tell you, he then poured out his grace upon us afresh by adopting us as sons. I was so struck. You know, the man in the dock. No, the man in the dock. It's such a common way of explaining the gospel, but, you know, actually, where God, the judge, being God, firstly forgives us. This is the gospel, firstly forgives us. Then he says, okay, here's my son to take the just punishment that was yours. I'm going to give you my own son. He's grieved through it with me because we want to. We love you so much, we want to save you. We want to save you from that punishment that you deserve. So his son gets down from, the, from beside him and comes and takes his place. And this guy's sitting there. If you know you're sitting there, if you can imagine it, just in the dock, just, just like overwhelmed, man, he's just taking my place. And then the judge gives you a million pounds. He says, here you go, have a new life. Go, go with great riches. Go with great riches. And then, and then that's grace. And then beyond that, the judge caps it all off for you who's been in the dock, sent his son to take your place, giving you great riches and blessing beyond your means. Then he gets down from the dock. This was the bit that Terry opened up anew for us. He gets down from the dock and he says, hey man, listen, come home with me. You're my son. You know, I'm going to give you my family name, actually. Not because you deserve it. You did great wrong. But because I love you, you come home with me, you be my son, 
You have access to my table. I will count you in my inheritance. I will keep you and no one will ever take that away from you because it's something I've decided to do. That's what Jesus came to illuminate for us. That when you trust in him, he does all of those things by the great power of the spirit in us to bring about the new life and new place that he wants us to stand, unshakable in the mercy and the adoption of God. That is amazing. Once you get it, it is life-changing. This is what Jesus came to illuminate as he came to Jew and Gentiles alike. The world is trapped in sin and broken with God, heading for punishment, but he came to restore, forgive, show grace, and to adopt all who believe in him. Jesus is the most important belief you ever have. I started with this statement. What you believe about Jesus is the most important choice you ever make. And staying clear about who Jesus is is one of the most important things you can ever do. Why do we worship all the time? Why Doesn't it remind your heart about the great king enthroned on high? We need reminding to come back to keep him above all the other things, other idols, because he's so great. Let's keep coming back and keep him enthroned. You know, maybe this sounded like an overstatement, a, pe- a preacher's tool, an exaggeration when I started it. There are many important choices you make, Matt. There are loads of them. Who I marry. Do you know what I do with my time and job? Those are all important choices. And maybe settling on a comfortable opinion of who he is and living in peace is okay. Just keeping going in the main thinking of the day on critically that he's of little of no importance. Or in Islam that he's just one prophet among many. Or just a moral guy. Just to take on the opinions of your parents or teachers or whoever had authority in your life without questioning it. Maybe that's okay. Maybe you were thinking that. But I hope you've seen, I hope you've seen just in this brief talk today that Actually, and we'll increasingly see in this who I say I am teacher, that Jesus' teaching about himself was absolutely unique in all of history. It positioned him as something fundamentally different from anyone who had or would ever live. Making the choice for or against him and the benefits or losses of that choice for or against him absolutely fundamentally unique. Here in this I am statement, He said that knowing him is the difference between knowing God with you or not knowing God with you. Seeing the world as a hazy, dark version of itself. Understanding grace and salvation or not knowing these things. Being trapped in punishment and sin. The way he put it was, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. The implication being, if you don't, you still will continue to walk in darkness. But if you follow him, you will have life eternal.